Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Scott Mendelson, uh, who is a film reporter for The Wrap. Uh, but before that, he was Forbes' box office columnist for nine years. Uh, and for five years before that, authored Mendelssohn's memos. Uh, so he is... <laughs> He has been he has been doing the box office thing for a long time, and I I'd wanted to get Scott on, and I I now that he is he's getting out of the box office game, it feels like, or at least the daily you know what is happening in the world of box office at a nitty gritty granular level might be a good time to like talk about how the industry has changed over the last fifteen years from a pure business perspective. Scott, thank you for being on the show. I really well, you're appreciate welcome. it. I feel bad. I wish you knew you wanted me. I would have offered myself years ago. I enjoyed it. I, uh, yeah, I know. So you're, you know, it's, it's great to have you on. All right. So let's, let's, uh, let us talk about, first, I want to know what your, what your daily life is like, especially on the weekends, because this is like the, the first thing I do when I wake up on a Saturday or Sunday, and this is not a joke is I check to see what the box office reporting is, but that's because somebody else has done it and compiled all of the information from f- f- what is your what was your uh, average s- Saturday, Sunday, Friday night like? What what was that like for you? Well, it depended on how much work I had gotten done ahead of time. If we're just talking about the weekend box office figures, it's a situation where I would get some rough numbers from people I trusted, so I could do a rough draft of the article. As long as the math, you know, I could do the math, I could do the analysis, I could do the comparisons, and Nine times out of ten, the numbers were close enough to the real thing that I didn't have to scramble to rewrite anything when the real numbers started dropping on Saturday morning or Sunday morning. Ironically, the one exception to that was usually when you had a huge, massive mega opening. Because if a film did, you know, a multiplier, you know, a weekend multiplier, that means it's 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 opening weekend total divided by what it did on on Friday. So, you know, if a film does a two point five multiplier you know, from a $90 million debut opening day versus a $2.5 million five multiplier from a 90. That's a wildly different number than if you're just talking about a movie that's going to open with 10 to $20 million. Um, but, you know, more often than not, I try to do as much as possible um, on Friday afternoon, Friday evening, if time allowed, but I know what my kids were up to, just so I wouldn't have to do as much of a hustle in the morning. Um because my kids still like food and shelter and all that stuff. So, they, you know, sometimes we like my company. So, um, generally speaking, I would, I do one new, I would do one new release report on Saturday and one holdover movie report on Saturday. And then on Sunday, I'd do another double. I try to make them as, as fresh as possible. You know, not just re- repeating the same thing and putting a new headline on it. Um, a, cause, there were often new insights. B, I don't, you know, my editors didn't necessarily want me just copying and pasting from one report to another just because of, you know, and I get that. Um, as far and as far as what I would do once I had the numbers or trustworthy numbers, I would, you know, is this any good? What does this compare to? If it's a Friday number, then what are the possible weekend figures based on realistic multipliers? Um, you know, is the cinema score good? If it is, that means the multiplier is probably going to be pretty decent. If it's not, then it might not be, with the exception of horror. Because here's something, you know, trivia, whatever. 
cinema score is you know the one poll that I actually trust because it's not an opt-in one. People who go to the movies, pay money, and watch the whole damn movie are then polled by people walking out of the theater on opening night. You can't review bomb cinema score. You can't mm-hmm. clog up, you know, it's not like a Rotten Tomatoes user score or IMDB user score or really anything else of that nature. Um, so I tend to trust cinema score more than anything else. But the fun thing about horror is that horror movies tend to pull lower than average because you'll get people that give it a low score because it wasn't scary enough, but you'll also get people who give it a low score because it was too scary and it made them feel unpleasant. Mm-hmm. And that's not, that's unique to horror. Nobody is down on a comedy because it was too funny. Um, I mean, that's, that's a joke. They don't release live action comedy yeah. in theaters anymore. So it's <laughs> yeah. <good>. um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. It's funny. I actually had I actually had the the head of Cinema Score on the show uh, once last year, and we talked about this exact phenomenon. He said it's the, he said it's the weirdest thing. It's the only the only genre that it happens with. You know, you you can count on audience. If an audience loves a superhero movie, it's going to get an A or an A plus. Uh, if an audience loves a uh, romantic comedy, it's going to get an A or an A+. Plus. But a horror movie is always going to be about a grade lower, at least, than what, what you would expect to see. There are exceptions, and I'm going to sp- you know, slightly spoil some old horror movies, so I apologize in advance. Films that have an unapologetically happy ending tend to pull better. You know, Happy Death Day, Get Out, It Chapter One. Um, I think The Black Phone pulled pretty well, and I... I, I mm-hmm. You know, I'm not saying I'm a genius or anything, but I saw that in Vegas, like, oh, this is going to be... Because it's it's such a crowd-pleasing adventure film that's also a good horror picture. Um, and it's it's different than, you know, stereotypically speaking, your A24 film like Men or Hereditary that, you know, and those are very... You know, Hereditary is an interesting example because that's a film, it opened with like 13 and change in summer 2018, got a D from CinemaScore, and you had like a week of people going moviegoers are dumb why aren't they embracing this horror film and that's what i wrote the piece that i about horror and cinema score it's like look it's it's like the example i gave was in in 2009 2010 when when barack obama was trying to get the affordable care act into law and you do polling and the majority of people were did not approve of it and does that mean that they didn't want the aca or no you had people that loved it you had people that thought it was a, a you know a government scheme and you had people that didn't think it went far enough in terms of quote unquote government run healthcare. So those two forces combined to push the average down. But it doesn't mean that the the bill was the the core idea of the bill, which is, you know, quote unquote fixing healthcare, was unpopular with the majority of viewers. Um and then hereditary comes out and almost triples its opening weekend. <laughs> and yeah. it's it was yeah. up until recently A twenty four's biggest gross movie. And, yeah, and you see, we see something similar right now with a smile, right? Yes. Smile. I think smile got a B minus from yes. Cinema Score, which normally would be soft. If you if that's on any other genre, yes. you're like, oh my god, a B minus. Uh, but with horror, it's like okay, a B minus, and then it's 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 now at a multiple of at least three, right? It's headed yeah. towards 100 million. Yeah, it's, it's going to cross 100 million sometime this week. It's at 186 and counting worldwide, which means it's the biggest grossing live action, not from China original in worldwide grosses of the year. I think mean, it original. I mean, I mean, live action or not, I mean, there haven't been any animated non-sequel, non-IP yeah. that have done that either. So it's, it probably might not earn as much domestically as Jordan Peele's note, which did 123. It's already passed that film's 171 uh, global total, um, which is 
a huge surprise. <laughs> uh, yeah. I my box office betting pool was terrible this summer because I I I overbet on Nope and I underbet on mm. Top Gun, and you can guess how that went. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a tough one too because I mean everyone. Uh, was pretty excited for Nope. Everyone yeah. thought, okay, it's another it's another Jordan Peele original. People show up for for that. But I think they were also counting on it to be more of a horror instead of what it is, which is closer to sci-fi, yeah, right? It's, it's an more of a sci-fi, film. close encounters type movie. Yeah, and, and um, as far as Top Gun, I mean, first of all, what? the film earned noticeably more than it would have as it had it opened as just another summer biggie in summer 2020. I have, there's several movies in the quote-unquote COVID era that I would argue have performed better than they would have had they just been another tentpole for the week. Godzilla v. Kong, uh, Free Guy, Top Gun Maverick, Spider-Man No Way Home would have been a huge blockbuster in July 2021, but I don't think it would have hit $1.9 billion as just another you know MCU movie in the middle of the summer. Um, it benefited from the Christmas legs and being essentially the only game in town in late 2021 and early 2022 with the exception of, of scene two. And Illumination films have always done well alongside whatever big tentpole is out there. Well, let me ask, let me get your your take on this because obviously, you know, right now we're living through a much different era of box office results than we were three years ago, right? In 2019, uh, the, the pandemic upended everything. It, it changed everybody's expectations. Um, and it has reset things in a way, in ways that are both good and bad. I, let me get to the, I'll go with the good part first, because I think you're right. I think some of these movies have performed better than they would have otherwise, um, because there is less competition. We're not getting a hundred million dollar movie every single weekend yes. like we used to. Uh, now we get a hundred million dollar movie once every two or three weekends, you know, maybe once a month. And I understand, look, I understand why theater owners hate this. Like it's a, it's, it is not. This is not a sustainable model for the theatrical exhibition business, um, but it does make more sense from on the studio side of things, right? Uh, just in terms of letting things breathe a little more. Yes and no. I mean, the good news is you have fewer big movies, but longer legs for those films on the whole. Um, the problem is, and this is a problem going well well before COVID. The bottom kind of fell out on the studio programmer in late 2015, early 2016, when you had a large segment of what I call moviegoers that went to the movies just to go to the movies. They might see the event film, but they'd see something else too. That audience gravitated almost overnight to streaming. Um, and when that happened, you know, the quote unquote studio programmer, the star plus concept, non-franchise, non-temple, just a good movie, just Saturday night at the movies, you know, that niche, God forbid I call this the movie a niche, has been struggling for six or seven years. And if more people could be counted on more regularly to show up for regular movies like Don't Worry Darling and The Woman King, um, and not just, you know, lower budget horror films like Barbarian and Smile, then that would be great to not have year-round tentpole scheduling. I mean, year-round tentpole scheduling was always going to be a problem because a you have a do-or-die release every week that you know doesn't have the the space it needs to you know build legs and build word of mouth. And then you know sometimes what happened in early 2018 where you had Black Panther, which acted like Titanic, except all the f- movies that it steamrolled weren't small little movies like Deep Rising and Dark City and Wild Things. They were 
big budget franchise tentpoles like Tomb Raider and uh, A Wrinkle in Time, Pacific Rim Uprising, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, you could laugh at that, you know, because Black Panther was, you know, to a certain extent, you know, bucking conventional wisdom. The reason I got cranky about that is a lot of the films that it steamrolled were big studio pictures that starred not a white guy. You know, John Boyega's Pacific Rim sequel, a new Tomb Raider mm-hmm. film, did, you know, Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time. Um, and, you know, that was sort of one of Hollywood's chesses to show that, yes, people will put their money where their mouth is in terms of inclusivity and diversity. And everybody, I would argue, punched their, you know, diversity punch card with an MCU superhero movie and ignored everything else, which I think is an industry-wide pattern. Yeah. Um, and Do you think that... Well, let me, let me ask. Let me just uh, ask a question about this real quick because I, I do think it's interesting. Uh, the idea, the idea of punching the diversity, you know, take it on your on your movie pass or whatever, right? R.I.P. Um, the uh, do you think that movies can be marketed that way successfully? Uh, or uh, let me ch- let me change that. Do you think it is wise to market movies that way? Um, because if you look at something like Black Panther, I would argue Black Panther was definitely helped by. Being like, here is the first, uh, you know, huge, big African-American superhero movie, uh, you know, where all, all black cast, black writers, black director, you know. Um, but then you you look at something like Bros and that movie just gets destroyed at the box office. I mean, nobody shows up because it, I, I would argue at least in part because it is marketed as like we are an important movie you should come see us and that is your homework for the weekend and nobody wants to show up for that no and and the it's not even a dark secret because it's sort of obvious i would argue it's obvious is that people in general will not show up for a film they don't otherwise want to see just because it's a representational milestone and that makes sense i mean you know it's it's up to each individual person what matters to them in terms of what's worth going to see in a theater and unfortunately, what I found is that a lot of the people that talk online about diversity and inclusivity tend to only put their money where their mouth is when it's in a franchise title that they already want to see, whether it's uh, the Fast and Furious or Star Wars or a Marvel movie. Uh, there are obviously some exceptions. I mean, everything, everywhere, all at once. I mean, COVID or not, that's a miracle. And the fact that the Woman King has actually done pretty well at the domestic box office I dare not hope because for the last six, you know, but even before COVID, for the last several years, I was banging my head against the desk, you know, because everyone in the media is saying diversity is great, diversity makes money, inclusivity is great. And artistically and socially, it is, of course. But I was having to write these terrible box office write ups for Bad Times at the El Royale, The Hate You Give, The Spy You Dump Me, The Darkest Minds, uh, A Wrinkle in Time, Widows. Um, again and again and again in these films that were supposed to be what people say they wanted in theaters, but nobody was actually showing up. And one issue that, to be fair, is that there's a difference between demographics that are perpetually online versus those that aren't. And those that aren't, obviously, they will only see a movie when it's something they specifically want to see in a theater quickly. Because it's, you know, even before COVID, you had a new normal where films were out on VOD in relatively pristine viewing format in anywhere from 75 to 90 days after theatrical. You could rent it for five bucks and watch it on your big screen 4K television with a decent sized sound system or sound bar. You know, I mean, at least going back to 2016, theaters have been dealing with an issue where 
the only thing they really have to offer is ex temporary ex exclusivity. And that's why they fought so hard about collapsing the theatrical windows, uh, because there was a reason to believe that that was the only trump card they had left. Uh, the example I always like to give, and I've been you know singing this song for years, is that video game arcades were huge in what, the 70s and 80s. Um, you could play your Nintendo at home and play your mediocre adaptation of Double Dragon or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, or you could go to the arcade and play the real deal. But by the late 80s, early 90s, you know, the Super Nintendo, the Genesis, the first PlayStation, a bunch that I'm probably forgetting about, they started offering at home video game experiences that were as good at as, if not better, than anything you could find in an arcade. And almost overnight, the, the the video game arcade became an endangered species. And the ones that do exist now, the ones that are explicitly partaking in nostalgia, you know, when you've got like a Dave and Buster's or, you know, a Chuck E. Cheese or most video right. game arcades, they tend to have immersive experiences that you can't replicate at home. Most people do not have a giant air hockey table in their house. Most people do not have a shooting game where you can, you know, shoot a gun in a, yeah. In a cabinet at home, or when you play Mario Kart, you can't actually sit in a booth and drive a car. Um, and I have long feared that that was what was going to happen to the movie theater. That things that that were only in theaters, immersive experiences, you know, IMAX friendly temples, were going to be the the bread and butter of the theatrical industry, and almost everything else was going to be VOD or streaming. Yeah. Well, I, let's talk a little bit about how the industry has changed over the last 14 or 15 years or so as you've been doing this kind of, you know, on an on an intense granular level. Um, uh, you know, I, I feel like once upon a time, uh, the the theatrical experience was not limited to the big event picture in a way that it feels like it is now. Right. I mean, you know, uh, when, when you started writing about this, uh, what was your uh, kind of sense of what would play and what wouldn't play? And how has that changed? Over well, the last I started in early 2008 and I'll be honest, I took this as a, you know, any movie could be a hit. Now, obviously, you know, movie, you know, what's the line of Ratatouille? Uh, not everyone can be a chef, but a great chef can come from anywhere. So, you know, not every movie will be a hit, but any movie has the potential to be a hit if it has XYZ ingredients. And because you had a large component of people that would go to the movies just to see a movie, you know, they'd go, they'd give a movie like 21, that loosely based on a true story blackjack thriller, you know, a $20 million opening weekend with such huge stars as Kate Bosworth and Kevin Spacey and, and, God, I don't remember who the male lead in that is. Kind of makes my yeah. point. Um, but you also had, you know, a, a you didn't need franchises as much because actors were the franchises. Will Smith in a rom-com. Adam, Adam Sandler in a body comedy. Um, Jim Carrey in a goofy caper. Uh, Julia Roberts in a rom-com. Harrison Ford in an action movie. Uh, Tom Hanks in a feel-good, you know, melodrama. Um, these, these people in their cast to type personas were the franchises. You know, the example I always give is, is, is in 1994, 95, you make Tommy Boy, which stars Chris Farley and uh, David Spade. And that film is a popular, well-liked hit. You don't make Tommy Boy 2, you bring them back together and you make Black Sheep. 
And that was the mentality when not everything needed to be a, a, a sequel spawning franchise. They didn't green light the, the hangover with the expectation it would, you know, spawn a blockbuster trilogy. It was just a good movie with interesting elements and a strong hook. You know, three three goofballs wake up from a bachelor party in Vegas with no memory of what happened, and the groom is missing. That's a great hook. <laughs> um, and they yeah. were, you know, able to sell that movie in a relatively spoiler-free way. Now, does that mean that I'm sitting here thinking, oh, it's absolutely going to open $44 million? No, of course not. But the, the potential was there. In my opinion, the death of the star system, and by that I mean people no longer show up, with a few exceptions, to a movie star in a non-franchise, non-marquee character package. Uh, you know, Tom Hardy's not a star, but Tom Hardy as Venom is a star, that kind of thing. Sure. Or Tom sure, Holland... Sure. As John Cherry, maybe he plays in Cherry, that's a joke, you know, is obviously not a draw, but him as Peter Parker in Spider-Man is obviously a huge draw. Or related to that, him in Uncharted basically playing Nate uh, Drake as, you know, Peter Parker with guns, that's a draw. Uh, when you when you, you can kind of have a star value when you're have a, a well-liked actor, actress playing off their on-screen or off-screen persona. So I'm not going to say that Ryan Reynolds in a grimdark drama is bankable, but Ryan Reynolds in something like Detective Pikachu or Free Guy or voicing Pikachu in a Pokemon movie, that's of certain added value because, you know, he's a well-liked figure and he's playing either a riff on Deadpool or something that feels like a fun side subversion of the anti-Deadpool. Um, and again, this is a case-by-case basis. Um you know, 90% of Robert Pattinson's post-Twilight films were not well-seen, and they weren't the kind of films that were going to be well-seen. They were art films. But casting sexy Robert Pattinson as, you know, emo Bruce Wayne, that has value. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, but once you started losing the notion where you could just get away with just a movie star, you know, uh, Will Smith in a romantic comedy with a good concept gets you hitch, which makes 180 domestic of a $44 million opening. That's when you started seeing, you know, Oh no, people don't show up to original movies anymore. It wasn't that they desired originality over IP and franchises. It's that the actor or actress, and in some cases the director was enough to get them off their butts and into a theater in the first place. It wasn't like they went to the fifth element in 1987 because it was a bold, new, visionary, sci-fi adventure of the future from the guy that made, let's be honest, most of those people did not see Point of No Return, uh, La Femme Nikita. But sure. it was a $90 million FX-filled Bruce Willis action-adventure comedy. And that in 1997, that was enough. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. You start this, you start doing this in 2008, which feels in and of itself like a real hinge point here. Yes. Because 2008 is the year that The Dark Knight comes out and Iron Man come out. They come out within two months of each other. Yes. I think one was May, one the other was July. Uh, and that uh, changes everything. I mean, changes everything in two ways. One, 
as start of the MCU, obviously, you know, almost doesn't even need to be explained, but I'll have you explain it. Uh, and then the the second thing is the enormous opening of The Dark Knight, the the just the outrageous sum of money that that mo- that movie made changes how I think people look at opening weekends and how uh, and, and, and what the expectation set is. Um, so how does how does 2008 work as a hinge point in the in the history of the box office from your from your in point of view as somebody who got into it again? Yeah, in a number of ways. I mean, even by 2008, you were starting to see a situation where, oh, it's nice that this original star plus concept film like Lakeview Terrace starring Samuel L. Jackson and I believe Patrick Wilson, um, you know, opens yeah, well and a, yeah. does decent money uh, or a. Uh, what I, what I think with also the big part of 2008 is that with Sex in the City, Mamma Mia, and Twilight, you finally started to have a conversation about, wait, did we like waste an entire six, seven, eight years ignoring women because we were blindsided by Spider-Man, Shrek, and Harry Potter? And you know, the answer to that is yes. Um, and that's when you first started, at least at the mainstream, started seeing a real conversation about attempting to address the gender-specific inequities in the industry. And that is important because as the industry becomes more focused on tentpoles and franchises and blockbusters, the kind of films that used to give actresses a solid, stable career, mostly white actresses, but I digress, um, you know, the romantic comedy, the the legal thriller, the, the pulpy, you know, Ashley Judd action vehicle. You know, a film like that may have been, you know, polished B-movie hokum, and that's not a criticism, that's valuable, but today it would be, oh my goodness, it's almost a prestige picture. Um, yeah. And because, you know, it's an original female-driven story that acknowledges institutional sexism and blah, 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 blah. Uh, back in, you know, 1999, Double Jeopardy was just a movie. It was just a, yeah. you know, a high-concept movie with a good hook, and it had glamorous movie stars, it had Tommy Lee Jones playing to type, and that was enough. And, um, but as far as the you know the what I what I find annoying I guess and this isn't Marvel's fault is that they look at the the the, the performance of Iron Man a film that made three hundred eighteen million domestic and five eighty five worldwide on a one forty budget that changes Hollywood everyone wants you know the MCU is born it's going to change how we make movies uh, Will Smith's Hancock an original film uh, makes six hundred twenty four million worldwide and. Nobody cares. Hell, it's even tagged as a flop preemptively because the buzz is so bad that even though it actually is a hit, no one really noticed. Um, yeah. Which is something, one reason that I got into the business in 2008 to sort of beat back what I felt was some of the tabloidy coverage um, elsewhere. Uh, and especially the notion that people would make their judgments on opening weekend and not check back six weeks later to see what had happened. Yeah. Um, especially for films that would underperform in North America, but maybe kick ass overseas. Um, and, you know, a film like, you know, The Dark Knight comes out, makes a billion dollars worldwide, does 533 domestic, but overseas it only makes about 5 million more than Indiana, or over under 5 million more or less than Indiana Jones and Team of Crystal Skull, which made 200 million more than Iron Man, by the way. Um, and only 5 million more than Mamma Mia which opened on the same day and made $609 million worldwide on like a $50 million budget. But that film's success doesn't count. That's a fluke. We're not going to learn any lessons from that. And that 
is sort of the ongoing notion of how Hollywood has treated successes that don't star, you know, young white dudes. You know, if it's something that bucks conventional wisdom, the conventional wisdom is that it's a fluke and can't be copied. But if random white guy headlines a franchise film that does pretty well, holy shit, he's the new Tom Cruise. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. You mentioned overseas, uh, overseas box office, because I think that's another big story of the last 15 years, right? Is uh, first the influx of particularly Chinese, but really global just in general, yes. uh, cash into the Hollywood system and then the revocation of it uh, in 2021. Yes. I mean, I, I, I don't think it can be understated how much that changed what movies Hollywood makes um, and yes. and what, what gets greenlit. And I have long been of the opinion that Hollywood's obsession with China was basically a self-induced con. I'm not saying China con them, I'm saying Hollywood con themselves. And by that I mean, if you trace it from, you know, Avatar comes out in 2010 in China and does $200 million on, you know, which is a stunning, shocking number for any movie in China. Uh, and it does it on like 10% of the screens that will be available a decade later for Avengers Endgame, by the way. And then you have a handful of very big movies that do better than, a, you know, really, really well in China. Transformers Age of Extinction, which actually was, you know, had its entire third act shot in Hong Kong and was somewhat tailored to the Chinese government. You know, when I say Chinese audiences, nine times out of ten, it's what the Chinese government wants. Right. I don't want to, they're not a monolith, they're not a blog. They often sometimes have better taste than we do, to be frank. You know, you know Coco, you know, a representational milestone, barely made $200 million in North America. But in China, where, oh, Chinese people are so gracious, they only gave $100 million to Black Panther. Coco made $189 million in China, which is more than every Pixar movie there combined at that time. Um, you know, Green Book made like $70 million in China. Yeah. Uh, Black Panther did 105, which was perfectly normal for an MCU movie at that time. Prior to 2008, most MCU movies that weren't Avengers team-up films did over under 120. Um, where China was helping, especially in 2017 and 2018, were films that were doing pretty well, but weren't comic book movies. You know, Pirates of the Caribbean, Stranger uh, Tides, uh, The Meg, which was a Chinese-American go co-production that actually was the only big budget one of those and actually was a hit on both shores. Uh, the Great Wall was not. Yeah. Um, because you were trying to please both audience, you're trying to appeal to both audiences that end up boring both of them. I say that somebody likes the film, but commercially speaking, yeah. nobody cared. Um, and most of the big films that did exceptionally well in China were the same franchise films that kicked ass everywhere else. You know, the fact that a Fast and Furious film did better than normal in China, that's great. That's wonderful. But Furious 7 still would have made $1.1 billion without a penny from China. You know, Avengers Age of Ultron did 300 million in China. Oh my good. Okay, well, it still did 1.4 billion globally, so it didn't even need China to crack 1.1 billion. Um, and there are very few examples of big Hollywood movies that bombed pretty much everywhere else, but did so well in China, they were retroactively its. The one that comes to mind is Vin Diesel's Triple uh, X, The Reserve of Xander Cage. Mm which was, you know, made like 45 domestic, did I think 235 worldwide outside of China, or maybe 175, I wrote it down. Anyway, point being, it did 164 in China, which was ridiculous. Yeah. And the $85 million picture made 385 million in China. But it's been five and a half years. 
Have you heard anything on Triple X Four? Well, I you know Not for a while. It's it's interesting that you mentioned that because one I was thinking of just the other day. Uh, I, two, I was thinking of two the other day. One was Alita, which Alita Battle Angel, which did pretty well yes. in China. Uh, did I mean not not but not good enough? Not good enough. But the other was Warcraft. Now Warcraft did huge huge numbers in China. Did an enormous <laughs> amount of business in China to the extent that everyone oh, was like, well, I guess this is. A, I guess it's okay that it made what 80, 50, 80 million something. 40 Five million dollars yeah, in North America made, made nothing. Made virtually Even nothing. Back then, I was screaming at the top of my lungs about how bullshit that was. We'll do respect because here's the thing: Warcraft was a very popular game in China. Video games are very popular in China. People were interested in Warcraft. The film made ninety million dollars in its first two days. It made one hundred and fifty-six in its Wednesday Sunday debut, and topped out at two twenty. They didn't like it any more than we did. Mm. It was their Batman v Superman. Mm. Um, and that idea that so many people were using China or Warcraft as, oh, China's the future or China, Chinese audiences are stupid because they showed up to Warcraft, uh, which, you know, yellow peril we're getting into there. But again, they came, they put their thumbs down and they left. And the film made 440 million worldwide with, yes, about half of that in China. That wasn't enough to make it a hit. There is no Warcraft 2 on the horizon. And the handful of films that did well enough in China to get people's attention, Terminator Genosis, Pacific Rim, um, even like X-Men Apocalypse, which did 123 in China out of 543 million worldwide, which convinced Fox that it was a success, even though it dropped like a rock from X-Men Days of Future Past in North America and elsewhere. What happens two to three years later? Dark Fate bombs in China. Dark Phoenix bombs in China. Pacific Rim Uprising underwhelms in China. Again, Chinese audiences are perfectly capable of going to this movie because they think it looks good, saying, that stunk, I'm not going to go to the next one. Yeah. Uh, let's talk... Uh, it's it's funny you mentioned Hancock uh, a few minutes ago because I, uh, I have always been a fan of Hancock. I've always been a defender of that movie as one that's maybe that was at least five, maybe ten years ahead of its time because it's a deconstruction of... Oh, yeah. The superhero genre. But before, like, it's funny. You have a couple of these movies in a row. 2008, there's uh, Hancock. 2009, there's, uh, or 2010, there was Watchmen, right? And both were kind of pitched as like, here are, we're we're breaking down, we're breaking down the superhero genre. You've seen, you've had so many of these movies and we're we're deconstructing them. And it's still like, 15 years later, we're still going with them. Uh, they, yeah. they can't they can't be stopped. Um, um, the funny thing about Hancock is, and this is neither criticism nor compliment because it's it's interesting to me. That movie and it's it's I mean it's only like hundred minutes in its theatrical cut. I think there's like a hundred and ten minute extended cut that's pretty good. But that movie in a nutshell is what I think Zack Snyder and friends were trying to do with the first three DC films. The idea of you know you know, balancing being a world powerful superhero that can do good, that can make a difference, but with the notion that every everything I do is inherently political. And without getting into the discourse of those films, you know, Hancock is sort of the Cliff Notes version of that for me. Yeah. Um it's it's on it's on Netflix now. I almost threw it on the other day just because I was I, I was curious to see if it held up as well as I, I thought it did, let's talk. Uh, let's let's shift gears slightly. Um, I want to I want to talk about a mild controversy in the world of movie discourse. 
a couple weeks back, a month or month or two back, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese said, you know, it's it's ridiculous that everybody pays so much attention to the box office, and we nobody should, oh, you know, God, we shouldn't, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't be. Well, I'm not, I'm not doing the Marvel thing. I'm not. Don't no, worry, no, I'm not doing, like, not doing the Marvel thing. Different, different, Sorry. different thing. He 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 said something that's germane to this discussion. I think it's I think it's worth thinking about. Um, you know, he 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 came out and he said, look, you know, it's ridiculous that uh, everybody pays so much attention to the box office. Movie fans shouldn't care about the box office. They should care about the movie. And et cetera, et cetera. And I agree with that. And I think that he's 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 right to a certain extent to say like the the treating the box office like the uh, the box score of a baseball game is foolish. Like that's there, there's no reason for the average fan to be obsessed with them. And and there's and there's not very good reason for the coverage to be kind of driven the way it is. I do disagree though. In a broader sense, because I think it is useful for people to understand what is a success, what isn't, and how that helps or how that guides what movies actually get made. I mean, I don't think I don't think there's any I don't think there's anything wrong with having a basic understands uh, uh, understanding or sense of how the business is going um, and how that impacts what people end up seeing. Right? I mean, you, you you live you live and breathe this stuff or have for the last 15 yeah, years. Yeah, and for the record, I agree with him more or less. And, you know, I mean, Roger Ebert 30 years ago said, you know, don't follow the box office. Moviegoing is not a sport. And, you know, to a certain extent, I agree in that I think the problem is too many people that follow it and in some cases, too many people that write about it don't understand and they take the wrong conclusions or they don't, you know, it's, it's again, if everybody paid explicit attention to the marketplace and understood why consumers make some of the choices that they do, they wouldn't be blindsided when something like birds of prey underwhelms or when nobody shows up to widows, even though they should, uh, or they wouldn't pretend to be outraged when the writer of Bohemian Rhapsody gets hired to pen a Whitney Houston biopic. Yeah, Twitter may have thought it was controversial, but Bohemian Rhapsody made 905 million worldwide. That gets you the next job. That's how this works. Um, and it was a film that outside the Twitter sphere, most people liked. Yeah. Um, I do think, and I don't want to get on my high horse and say, oh, you know, people, more people. Get on, screwed. hop on it. People like, well, I mean, I think one of the issues of the last four or five years is that fandoms have become so tribalized and now every IP has their glorified segments of fandom that are cults. And they tend to interpret any news about their favorite prized IP as a personal attack against them. So, you know, it's, 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 and I think that infects everything, including box office analysis. You know, it's, 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 and again, this is mostly among the perpetually online, but because of the way the online media works these days, those people can often skew the, the, the narrative because in an SEO driven media landscape, if you have a bunch of really loud people saying something shocking and you can turn that into an article, people are saying that it doesn't really matter if most people really aren't saying that, you know, most people didn't give a shit, you know, didn't love or you know, most people didn't like The Last Jedi that much more than The Force Awakens. Most people didn't hate Rise of Skywalker that much more than The Last Jedi. Most people thought Star Trek Into Darkness was fine, whatever. Most people thought Spider-Man 3 was maybe a step down from Spider-Man 2, but not a war crime. You know, most you know most people did not have strong opinions about Anne Hathaway. Or that they either thought she was a good actress or they didn't give her any, 
you know, who cares? It's not my concern. You know, I saw her as Catwoman in The Dark Knight Rises. That was cool. I saw her in Lame as Rob because I like the show. Whatever. End of story. But, you know, because of the internet and the way the internet works, you get this weird online-only trend of half the haters. Why are people trying to bring down this successful young actress just for being, you know, driven and eager and whatever? And, and in a vacuum, that would be terrible because she has done nothing to earn their scorn. But my theory has always been that that was always a mirage. The example I always give is, is in, two, in late 2015, there was a hashtag called Boycott Episode 7. And it was, you know, theoretically, let's boycott The Force Awakens because there are women and black people in it. And it turned out that the hashtag was created by like four trolls online that were just trying to get trending for fun. And it did get trending. But something like 96% yeah. of the conversations around that were people condemning or responding to the original outrage. So in even in the Twitter world, nobody was actually wanted to boycott episode seven. But once the media learned that you could take a false online controversy like that and turn it into a people are saying story, complete with juicy quotes of people clapping back or responding in a righteous way, that was game over. Yeah, it's funny. I I remember when that happened. I I wrote a piece for the site I used to work for. Uh, It was was headlined very simply, there, there is no black stormtrooper controversy. Because there, yeah. there wasn't. I mean, I remember no. I, rem- I remember Disney put out a letter saying, like, some people are, you know, going to be angry about this. But nobody was angry about it. Nobody was actually upset about it. And as you mentioned, in all of the pieces that accompanied this, it was a bunch. Uh, there were a bunch of tweets embedded or, you know, YouTube comments, you know, condemning the outrage. And but there was no actual outrage. It was very, no, very fascinating. And, and it's all the time. Yeah. And every single time, you know, people didn't care about women only Wonder Woman screenings. Mm-hmm. For that matter, people didn't care that she, you know she was the movie was being sold using thick thin protein bars or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, people didn't care about Captain Marvel. No one really thought she was going to Brie Larson was going to get fired and or ruin the MCU. For that matter, regular you know general moviegoers thought Green Book was fine. They thought Bohemian Rhapsody was a rock and roll entertainment spectacular. They thought those that saw it thought that you know three Ebbings of uh, the Three Billboards of Ebbing, Missouri was a pretty decent movie. And every time we have one of these pre-release non-troversies, that's, I should trademark that, non-troversy. Um, and they go, oh, is this going to affect the box? No, it's not. You know, I mean, The Woman King has made something like 65 million domestic. So obviously the boycott The Woman King hashtag on Twitter is a soaring success. Yeah. And one thing that I found incredibly problematic over the last few years as things have shifted to streaming is when you have a Turning Red. Turning Red was supposed to be in theaters. It got sent to Disney Plus, and we can whine about that later if you want. Um, after the film came out, there was a lot of online chatter, most of it through social media, about how you know parents and people were upset about the film because it was teaching about puberty. It was teaching daughters to be mean toward their parents, or it was you know it was sexualizing minors. All that, all this bullshit, and. The film got review bombed on IMDb and it got review bombed on Rotten Tomatoes. But if the film had been in theaters, you could have combated that bullshit with strong box office. People showed up. Strong cinema score. People that showed up actually liked it. And Rotten Tomatoes, when you buy, when you see something in a theater, you can vote in a verified version of their user polls, which shows that you bought your ticket through Fandango. 
So if there's a huge discrepancy between the verified users and the non-verified users, you know something's up. And it's a bunch of racist, sexist trolls review bombing things. Yeah. But when you don't have that, there's no there's nothing to counteract the bullshit scandals. Yeah. Well, except viewing numbers and turning red did huge, huge yeah. numbers. I mean, I, like I, mean, I, only, I said, uh, yeah, you know, for better or worse, streaming streaming figures have not entered the popular consciousness the way box office has. And, and to be fair, I don't know if they ever will. Mm-hmm. You know, we still don't really talk about DVD sales and Blu-ray sales as tangible whatevers. Um, and, you know, whatever. I mean, the people involved with Turning Red know they made a good movie. And I believe the director got promoted at Pixar anyway. So happy ending. It's just, you know, it's really frustrating because we know this stuff is bullshit. And we're losing the tools to prove it day after day. Well, let's let's shift uh, from the deleterious effect of Twitter, which is enormous. Everyone should get off Twitter. I should get off Twitter. We should all get off. But uh, and and to the streaming revolution, because this has this has again, this has changed everything. The pandemic accelerated a lot of changes that were probably coming anyway. Uh, But it has it has massively upended uh, the the business of filmmaking. I mean, from your uh, from from your seat as the the box office guru, uh, you know, uh, I think one of the things that you said in your goodbye thread was, "I I can finally stop yelling at studios every time they take something streaming only," um, which is a which it was is fair. I still get slightly annoyed by that stuff too. Uh, you know, it's bad for theaters, it's bad for the theatrical experience, and for all the reasons you say it, it creates fewer data points to show if something is successful. Whatever. Uh, what is your what is your take been on the last two years or so of the rise of streaming i think what we've seen generically speaking and this is still all a work in progress is that people do not want as much of a disruption in how they consume entertainment as studios may have believed and as i've been arguing for years since the beginning is like look the streaming revolution that came about in 2020 and 2021 was circumstantial if you can't leave your home without getting you know risking a deadly disease, you're going to watch more Netflix. You're going to sign up for Disney Plus maybe earlier than you otherwise would have. Uh, And the streaming gains were circumstantial. And that would be fine if these weren't publicly traded companies that weren't now kowtowing to a Wall Street that expected growth every quarter and did not or would not take into account the fact that, hey, maybe the booms in 2020 were kind of a special situation and the fact that Disney plus hit its like 2024 marker in 2021 or whatever should be taken into account when seeing how well they did and you know, 2023 and beyond. Um, but they don't. So now you have this weird situation where Netflix and, and Disney of especially Netflix and Disney have, you know, sort of unprecedented growth for the streaming markets, right? When they were, when Disney plus was launching due to a once in a generation, hopefully event, and, you know, it's like, okay, well, what the hell do we do now? Because Wall Street still expects us to grow and grow and grow. And that's why, you know, Bob Chapek was sending all the Pixar movies to the streaming because, you know, anything to goose the Disney Plus goose. Um, but what we've seen, generically speaking, and there are some exceptions, is that movies that, except with outside of Netflix, because Netflix has such a huge subscriber base that it's almost playing in its own castle. The, the lazy comparison is, at least in pre-COVID terms, you know, Netflix was basically China, where you had these big Chinese blockbusters that were making five, six, seven, eight hundred million dollars just in China, and that's you know almost irrelevant to everyone else. Some of those movies were pretty good, by the way. 
Um, but anyway, um, outside of China, we know HBO Max, Disney Plus, Paramount Plus, uh, Peacock. Films that play in theaters tend to do better when they come to streaming versus just streaming premieres. You know, the marketing dollars are there. The awareness campaign is there. The notion of prestige because this film played in theaters. All of that combines to where you're not hurting a film streaming potential by putting it in theaters first. And in, you know, in some cases, you're helping the film streaming potential. And I think whether he's evil or not, I think David Zasloff gets this yeah. in a way that perhaps Jason Killar either did not or was encouraged to ignore. And again, there were outside forces. He's not the villain. This is not good and evil. Sure. And that's another thing that drives me nuts about the discourses. How often these business conversations about popcorn entertainment devolve into conversations about virtue. And I'm not even talking about people misbehaving on movie sets. That's, you know, if you're a raster actress, you should go. End of story, more or less. But I'm talking about things like, you know, oh, David Zasloff is evil because he canceled Batgirl or, you know, whatever. It's like, I'm not thrilled with that decision, but it's not good and evil here. Anyway, I'm getting off track. I apologize. The long and short of streaming is that I believe that theatrical distribution for movies, even studio programmers, uh, will benefit the streaming afterlife. Um, and I think Sony realized that, and they signed a big deal with Netflix for the first pay TV window a couple years ago, and that started to go into effect this year. So they now have a cushion to make films like The Woman King and Bullet Train and Where the Crawdads Sing, as well as films like you know Spider-Man 4 and Men in Black or Jumanji 4 or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so even if those films don't kick ass theatrically, they're still going to do very well on Netflix by virtue of consumers that still want to use streaming to watch comfort food. Yeah. And as much as the hot must watch streaming originals tend to get all the buzz, and this is especially outside of Netflix, the content that does best for a lot of the streaming stuff are the comfort food, the studio programmers that they remembered seeing in theaters 10 years ago, the studio programmers that they forgot to see in theaters 10 years ago. Um, you know, Seinfeld, Friends, The Office, The New Girl, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, freaking Tubi is doing well because people just want to watch old ladies action movies. Um, yeah. Tubi and Pluto, I think, the future. Yeah, I love Tubi. <laughs> That's one of the only ones I do for fun other than Shudder. Um, um. Uh, well, I, we are, we're running long here. I don't, I don't want to cut you off, uh, but I do always like to, uh, close by asking if there's anything I should have asked. Like what, what do you think, uh, folks should know about the state of the industry, uh, or, you know, how things have changed over the last 15 years that we didn't, we didn't get a chance to, to talk about here. One bit of very good news, and this may be a mirage. I find it fascinating that the PVOD window, which Universal basically invented in, in April of 2020, excuse me, April 2020 with Trolls World Tour, which a lot of people, myself, were like, uh-oh, this could be the end of theatrical. Uh, I wasn't that melodramatic, but on the inside I was. I was like, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Here's what actually happened, at least, especially for Universal, but, you know, the other one, you know, they're not the only studios that do this now, but the PVOD window, which is basically rent this movie for 20 bucks and you keep it for 48 hours. And that's a window in between theatrical and the general VOD, rent it for five bucks, buy it for 20, or buy it on DVD, whatever. This in-between window created an entirely new revenue stream that so far has not cannibalized theatrical. And as a result, we're seeing 
evidence of evidence, because they won't give me the numbers because they're mean. Um, so evidence of evidence that studio programmers like the Northmen and Ambulance are actually doing well enough on the PVOD marketplace and then on streaming for them to be qualified as successes. So if Ambulance can cost $40 million and make 51 worldwide, that would be a flop but still do well enough on PVOD and Peacock and whatever for Universal to assign a deal with Platinum Dunes and stay in the Michael Bay business, that seems to imply that there is now commercial value in making a film like Ambulance and putting it in theaters where there might not have been before PVOD. Let me ask two questions about that because this is really interesting to me and it's something I I have not uh, been paying enough attention to frankly and I'm 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 always kind of curious by so the the two part question is this one is this essentially replacing or serving as a stand in for the revenue that DVD and Blu-ray used to generate is that is that 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 uh, I that am hesitant to say yes because a I don't have the numbers and b I think it was always intended if I'm speaking optimistically, as as a supplement to, you know, I would say a lot of what Hollywood has done in the last 10 years or so, including their gamesmanship in China, has been about replacing DVD revenue. Yeah. And that's sort of the, the missing piece of the puzzle. I mean, Matt Damon is correct when he talks about that being one big reason why right. it's so much riskier to just release a movie in theaters. Um, but even if it doesn't, you know, if it's, even if it's not a one-to-one comparison, I have seen, again, evidence of evidence, and I, hate, I generally hate using that, but that the PVOD revenue stream, as well as the value that these theatrical films bring to streaming platforms, you know, has created a possible new normal where it is now a better situation for studio programmers, just movies, to exist for theatrical distribution than I've seen in the last six or seven years. Because if studios are of the mindset that they can release this theatrical film, and even if it doesn't kick ass in theaters, it's going to do pretty well on BVOD. It will add value to the streaming marketplace, and they'll still get their ATV windows and all that DVD sales and all that jazz to where it's not that risky. Then we may see more movies in theaters and a greater variety of movies in theaters than a curmudgeon, cynical bastard like me ever thought possible six years ago. Well, that's the optimistic. That's the best. <laughs> that's fingers crossed. The the second part of this question is 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 the success of this PVOD window in addition to theatrical and everything else. Is it a function of audiences not knowing ahead of time when something is going to hit PVOD? So, for instance, a that's movie like my fear. Well, yeah, that's my fear. I, I, my understanding Sorry. is that Bros is doing pretty well on PVOD. I don't know for sure, but I I pay a lot of attention. I pay a ton of attention to what is coming out when, and I did not know that Bros was going to be hitting PVOD four weeks after the theatrical release, which suggests to me that it was moved up. I know it was also or it was three moved weeks up by after. a couple days. Okay, it wasn't moved up. I mean, generically speaking, when they say it's a seventeen day window, they generally mean like a twenty one day window. Yeah. Because it has its 17th day, that's the third this third Sunday, and then that next Friday into the weekend, it comes out on PVOD. With bros, for whatever reason, they dropped it that Tuesday, which is when, you know, most VOD, DVD stuff comes out anyway. Yeah. Um, is that the new normal? I don't know, but it was unusual in that case, but only by a couple of days. 
Yeah. Okay. Maybe maybe I just wasn't paying enough attention then. I also I mean I also felt like the Northmen came out a little earlier on PVOD than I was expecting. But again, maybe I just didn't. That was it, yeah. That was focused features and it did not open to fifty million dollars. Right. <laughs> but again, yeah. if the Northmen can somehow be seen as profitable because of this new normal, then everything is safe. Yeah. Yeah. That's a seventy million dollar R-rated, star-free. All due respect, I mean Taylor Joy is not a butts and seats draw. Uh, most of them aren't, unless you're like Leonardo DiCaprio and Sandra Bullock, and sure. under certain circumstances, Denzel Washington and Gerard Butler for a budget. Except anyway, that's a longer conversation. It's yeah. DiCaprio, Bullock, and everybody else. Yeah. Um, but so you know, if that film can, you know, it made like sixty-five million worldwide on a seventy budget. If that film can somehow be considered profitable through PVOD and streaming and all that jazz, then I have hope for the future. Yeah. Uh, well, let's end on a positive note then. All right, Scott, thank you. <laughs> Scott, thank you for being on the show again. Congratulations on the thank new you. gig. Very exciting. Where, uh, tell people where to come come find you. Uh, the wrap. Just go to the wrap. You know, yeah, right, right now I'm working on my first quote-unquote big beast or whatever, so... I'm, there, I'm not putting many points on the board yet, but it's my first week and I'm still getting yeah. adjusted. Well, it takes time. Hopefully takes in a time. month, I'll be as busy as I used to be. <laughs> and in two months, I'll be as busy as I used to be pre-COVID. That's the goal. Yeah, yeah fingers crossed. And follow Scott on Twitter. He's a, he's a, great, he's a great follow. I, I will still uh, be know. annoying and obnoxious and problematic on Twitter. Uh, and we will uh, again. Thanks for being on the show. It was is great You're having you on. I should have done this. Should have done this last year. Should have done this years ago. Uh, all right. My name is Sonny Bunch. Uh, I am the culture editor at the Bulwark, uh, and I will be back next week with another episode of the Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. We'll see you guys then. Mm-hmm.